Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Finding out what makes plants and grass so powerful and figuring out the best ones to plant for the environment. Now, just classifying what a grass is is pretty complex when it comes to figuring out what gives it its unique properties and ability to resist such harsh treatment like being chopped with a lawnmower. And we find out about where exactly you should plant trees to have the maximal impact for public health, especially around a city. This week, we look at what plants can do for us and the environment around us. Many people have complicated relationships with grass. Well, they might remember having to mow it, their lawn, as a kid when they were growing up. They might also get bombarded with all that grass seeds and pollen that gives them hay fever. They might also want to have a nice looking garden with lots of greenery, so wanting to grow their own lawn and keeping it alive despite the high water cost and potential environmental impacts of doing so. But lawn is a relatively recent concept, let's say ever since the 17th century or so when English country gardens started to form and be propagated across the English-speaking world and across also through Europe to be fair. Now the idea of grass and lawn are really interesting because grass in and of itself is a very very strange plant mostly because it is really unusual. One of the continual challenges if you have nice and strong growing grass is that you need to keep cutting it. And in fact grass, whether or not mechanically cut or chewed by livestock, regularly gets shorn back. Mowers and animals graze on it and take little bits off. But despite all of that, if you water it correctly and don't overwater it and have it growing in nice soil, then grass can regrow itself pretty heartily and not really get fast by this continual shearing that it is undertaking. And this is really amazing when you think about it. If you chopped off a finger, you wouldn't grow it back immediately. Now, our fingernails do, and that is quite interesting because they have a different type of growing process than, say, the rest of your body. But how does that work for grass? Because it's not like there's a huge distinction between the blade of the grass and everything else. Or is there? And this is really something that has been debated by scientists for a long time, all the way back to the 19th century, where botanists first proposed a structure for how grass was actually defined, what type of plant it was. And this went backwards and forwards, flip-flopping between this definition and a later one from the 20th century. Really specifically, first, how do you classify grass? What kind of plant it is? And, and how does grass manage to regrow itself? Like, what mechanism is it using to do so? And researchers have been going backwards and forwards with this for a long time. And now, published in the journal Science, with lead author Richardson, along with a number of others from Cornell University and the University of California and University of Edinburgh have been diving into this topic of trying to analyze using both better modeling techniques and, and complicated genetics to understand exactly how grass is able to regrow itself and how you can even categorize it. So we try to categorize flowering type plants which grass normally is counted in. You can group it into two types the monocots and the eudicots. Now, monocots, which grass are normally classified as being part of, have leaves that encircle the stem at the base, and they have parallel veins throughout. Eudicots, which are like brassicas, so think cauliflower or legumes, and most actual shrubs and trees, they have leaves that are held away from the stems by stalks. That's you know what you imagine when you picture a tree, or even you picture something like broccoli. Now, these stalks are called petioles, and they have 
broad laminas with net-like veins spreading across them. So the challenge here is in, in grasses, the base of the leaf forms like a tube-like structure around it called a sheath. Now this sheath for grass is really handy because it helps the plant increase in height while actually still staying close to the ground, it's growing tip, which means it's protected from blades of lawnmowers or animals chomping down on it. And that's a really important thing because this is one of the advantages that grass has. By the way, it also applies to other plants that use the same sheath-like mechanism. You're thinking of things like wheat, rice, maize. They all have this sheath around a growing section. So grass is but one of the many plants that do this. Now, way back in the 19th century, botanists went first studying in detail this grass sheaf, said it was, well, equivalent to the petiole of the edgicot leaves. The petiole, again, being the stalk that protects the actual leaf and sticks it away from the main growing tip. But during the 20th century, when plant anatomists studied these in detail with nice microscope and more advanced methods, they noticed that the petioles, these stalk-like branchy things carrying the grass leaves, actually have parallel veins, actually similar to the leaf itself. And, and therefore they said, oh no, hang on, the entire grass leaf, sheath and all, except for a tiny region at the tip, was all actually part of the petiole. And the problem here is this is just about classification of which part performs which role in the grass itself. And with the way classification systems work, this is how scientists define one species from the next. So it might seem a bit like semantics, but it's actually quite important. What part of the grass does which job? It's also important for understanding how to improve those functions as well. Now, by using new computer modeling and also developmental genetics, Researchers in this research team dive back into this topic. What they did was they modeled different hypotheses for how grass leaves grow, and then tested those models against a set of experimental results to see which would predict how exactly this grass would grow. And what they found is that the idea from the 19th century of a sheath-like petiole, which is this protective stalk pushing out the leaf from the main growing body, was actually much more closer to the actual experimental evidence than what is normally considered the dominant description of a grass. And basically, to do this, the researchers had to build pretty intricate computational models and also do really close observation in experimental setups, monitoring the predictions of those models. But this is a pretty powerful technique because it allows researchers to use and understand the genetics of certain plants, make predictions on those, and then monitor how they go in terms of growth. And with that, you can solve a lot of other riddles. The same kind of technique has been recently done by this research group to look at the development of what's called of invertebrates like insects. Now, in an insect, they have like an underbelly side. And for us, when we have like our spine out in a vertebrate, that's on our back. That's sort of like that main growing plane of the spine. And for insects, it was long thought and then discarded that the underbelly was the same thing. And it was discarded for how insects grow. At least that's what we thought. But actually doing this detailed close analysis with highly trained computer models and also really good knowledge of genetics and making a really interesting experimental setup means researchers can investigate these topics. So using these gene techniques also allows researchers to then make predictions on what else you could do. If you tweak this gene, what happens? Well, actually, you can end up with a variety of different leaf shapes. And that is a pretty interesting part about the common gene pattern shared by a lot of these plants. You can make a diverse type of leaf shapes. 
And that's really cool because nature is actually developing all these diverse type gene tapes. And you can see how, through actual experimental modeling, how they got to those positions in the first place. Because after all, what we're doing with supercomputers and advanced modeling is trying to speed up a process that nature normally does over millions of years. And it's great that we have now these tools to really peel back the curtain and understand what's going on underneath this, let's call it a protective sheath, that nature throws up at us. Nature has been evolving and improving plants to avoid predators or being cut, either way you want to view it. Um, and as a result, we have ended up with a huge diversity of plant shapes and leaf shapes. And it all comes back to these decisions about where to start growing from and how you protect the tip that is growing. There's some great work published in the journal Science about what exactly is a leaf and how you can classify it and what you can do to try and make predictions about the shapes of leaves and how they would have been developed in the first place. climate change is that we need more trees and that's certainly true but not all trees are the same and it's really important to understand what trees are suitable for a given environment or a given set of objectives even when saying okay well we're only going to plant native trees that trees that naturally belong in this environment as opposed to invasive species or introduced species of tree well that's also a good step but even amongst the native trees there's types of trees that have advantages and disadvantages for what you're trying to do with them. And if you're trying to remediate pollution in an urban area, then you want to make some specific choices about which type of tree you plant, because some trees are going to be way better at helping, well, take pollution out of the air, for example, than others, whereas other trees might be good at uh, introducing a lot of additional uh, carbon dioxide remediation. They don't really do much for pollutants, and they might introduce, well, lots of fruiting that drops on the ground and causes well a different kind of pollution as well so it's a careful balancing act and that's one of the things that researchers from rice university in houston have been diving into and published in the journal plants people planet now this involved researchers lauren hopkins deborah january bevers and Aaron Catton and Laura Campos, and they're a collection of both researchers plant researchers data scientists city health experts to all work together to try and catalogue, analyse and then plant thousands of trees all across Houston to tackle this idea of pollution and improve the city itself. And to tackle this question really of what trees to plant, they developed a method, a framework, and they come up with this structure to help you identify which trees are the right ones to plant, how to identify places where they will have a really high impact if you plant them, and how to engage with the community to actually make sure that tree planting actually happens. And not only do you plant a tree, that it has a chance to thrive and survive in that urban environment. Now, one of the case studies they started with was using Houston, and they looked at what tree species would work really well in that particular city in the United States, based on their ability to soak up carbon dioxide from the air, deal with pollutants in the air and in the soil, drink 
in water so they couldn't be too thirsty, and also stabilize the land during floods, and also provide a canopy, which is useful for birds, other species, as well as producing shade into the environment, which is great at lowering the actual average temperature in an area. So that's a little different criteria. And if you go through that, you can sort of narrow down the list of species from a really, really wide list to a much smaller one. And starting with a list of 54 native trees native to the area again, they narrowed that down based on their ability to soak up pollutants, provide flood mitigation, cool these urban heat islands. They got down to around 17. If you take out the ones that introduce fruiting and basically drop a lot of fruit on the ground, which can produce other problems, well, you sort of got down to 14 species. These so-called super species that they are perfectly designed for tackling some of the challenges that you might find in an urban environment, or at least for Houston. Now, what they saw was that live oaks were the number one tree to go to in the region for their ability to soak up pollutants across the board. Now, sycamore trees, on the other hand, were, weren't able to take as much carbon dioxide out of the air, but they were really, really good at taking pollutants out of the air and the ground and also doing flood remediation, especially when you consider that all of this comes with a really wide canopy that you get in a sycamore tree as opposed to an oak. So these are the types of criteria that the researchers were weighing up and analysing and that helped them pick which tree was good to plant. But there's another thing to analyse which tree you'd like to plant and a whole different one to go find some place to plant them. One thing to remember is that if you look at a tree like, let's say, a live oak or American sycamore, red maple, laurel oak, these are really good at taking specific things out of the air. Ozone, nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, sulphur dioxide, and particulate matter, PM 2.5 microns and smaller. Now, that's a really useful thing because these are all things that lead to poor public health outcomes when they're present in the air. If you think about neighborhoods or areas along a busy road, well, they're going to end up with a lot of those things in the air and it can have a serious detrimental effect. People living along the side a really busy road with lots and lots of traffic have been noted to have worse health outcomes, mostly because of the actually pollutants in the air around those roads. So trees can play an important role if you place them in the right locations. And recently, in another separate paper published by Camcos Hopkins and Catherine Enser, another professor in statistics, looked at how in Houston, preventable asthma attacks can be avoided by planting trees and improving air quality around schools. And similarly, you can see a decrease in cardiac arrest events by having lower ozone levels in certain areas, especially ones with more trees present. So it's a pretty strong public health competitive reason to actually you know, plant these trees. Then you've got to convince local community groups that you actually can plant them there. And that's where they had to do specific engagement work after identifying two sites, Clinton Park neighborhood and an area adjacent to the Houston Shipping Channel. Now, working with the community groups in the region, they planted around 7,500 of these specifically chosen trees, super trees. And it was important that they engage with the community because when there's such a long list of tree options to potentially plant, exactly which ones you plant and where and in what kind of groupings really needs to reflect what the community actually desires out of that space as well. There's no good planting a whole bunch of trees if, well, the community is not going to be there to support them or if they're not actually conducive to what the community needs in that area. And that's where researchers like Campos and Rice work together to actually build these maps where they can see 
all across Houston where there's strong correlations between public health and pollution. And from that, you can see where it would be most effective to specifically plant trees. Not on that street, but on this one. These kind of decisions where you can make informed choices about where to do mass plantings, which can really lead to not only these, these super trees having a great impact on their own, but actually having a wider public health impact on an overall on a city. And the program is still going on, right? Because they planted originally only 7,500, but they're now up to 15,000 of these native super trees planted across Houston. And they're trying to use this as a goal, a strategy map that can be exported to other cities to show them how they can assess their own public health and environmental needs in a given region of a city, and then make informed choices about what to plant and where. So whilst planting a tree is definitely something that can help save the planet or even just the health of a community around it, you need to make sure that you're planting the right tree and making good choices about where to get the most effective planting. This is a great paper published with researchers from Rice University and other city-based organizations in Houston, published in the journal Plants, People and Planet. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From understanding what exactly makes a grass so special and to helping understand where to plant trees across the city to have maximal benefit for public health. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.